So the book is called The Six Phases of Globalization, and it goes back to 2016. So it's relatively uh, a re relatively recent vintage, our thinking on this issue. And for both Anthony and myself, um, 2016 marked a, a turning point because we had the election of Donald Trump. Uh, we had the Brexit vote in the United Kingdom. And both Anthony and I are international economic lawyers. Um, in my case, it's mostly trade law. In Anthony's case, mostly investment law. And these events really shook the foundation of what we had uh, come to think about the international economic order. You saw suddenly you saw um, ideas and um, and views on the international order come to prominence in, in a way that had never happened before. You could only find this view before on the fringes. Maybe you had the protests in Seattle against globalization. Uh, you had um, Ross Perot in the United States, but they were really re regarded as fringe views. And suddenly you found them um, at the center of the political discussion. But, but what spurred us to start working on this project was not only the, the fact that we suddenly had these, these outsiders coming in, into, the, into, into power centers, but it was also the reaction by the economic establishment. And we felt that um, some of that reaction was incredibly, was very defensive and was very dismissive of these challenges and didn't really uh, address some of the concerns that were raised. And here I wanna address a, a methodological choice um, that we make in the book um, and in our engagement with these issues, which is to focus on narratives about economic globalization. And in order to understand why we made that choice, is you have to keep in mind that we are not economists. So we are not really equipped to engage uh, with, with the some of the empirical claims that, that are made by, by these challenges to globalization. Um, so we, we, we didn't want to talk to weigh in on whether Trump and Brexit was uh, and the Brexit supporters were, were offering accounts that were empirically correct. Our focus was on understanding where they were coming from. Like, what are the stories that they're telling? What are the values that they don't see represented and protected in the current order? And so by focusing on, on narratives, that gave us a little bit of freedom to talk about these stories that, uh, that these opponents of globalization tell without necessarily passing uh, judgment on the empirical veracity of the claims right away. So in a way, it allowed us to, to bracket the question of whether every, every story that they tell is empirically correct and focus more on, on the values that they were trying to bring to the forefront. And why, one way of thinking about this mess that we, we confronted was, was like, like in a, a Rubik's cube, with, which is a scramble. So you have all these different colors. And the question that one way of framing the question that we asked was, could we unscramble this uh, Rubik's cube, take all these different arguments and, and create coherent faces? And we ended up coming up with six such faces. The starting point was, of course, what we call the establishment narrative. And this is the kind of narrative that you would hear from uh, if, if you got a bunch of trade lawyers and, and trade economists together and put them on a panel. And those are, are the kind of views that they would all agree on, right? It's what, what Paul Krugman uh, described like the various people as, as the various serious people in the field like they would they would hold these kinds of views and the, the gist of the establishment narrative is essentially that that everybody ultimately wins from globalization and so we've tried to represent this in this graphic you see at the top you can you see like the the, the owners of capital uh, the rich yes they win a bit more than those at the bottom uh, the workers in both developed and developing countries but ultimately, everybody wins. And, and the key message of the establishment narrative is that uh, the gains from trade can be redistributed so that everybody 
becomes better off. So even though those at the top may be winning more initially from globalization, you can take the gains uh, from trade that the, those at the, at the top reap and redistribute them to them to, to those at the top, or even those who have like maybe temporarily lost uh, from. The message that comes out of organizations such as the Trade Organization, the World Bank, and the International Monetary Fund. If you look at some of the reports that these organizations published, the election, it was really a message that trade works for all, right? And all adjustment by those who have temporarily lost out. Perhaps the most um, striking graph that the narrative uses is this so-called hockey stick of global prosperity, which shows world GDP over the last two millennia. And see, we see that we are basically at subsistence level for, for thousands of years, and then it shoots up once the world embraces, embraces a technological change and, and international um, free trade. Because at that point, you create, use technology to create huge markets, allowing people to specialize, become way more productive. And as a result, we have this hockey stick of global prosperity. But it's not just in the developed world. Uh, the other um, fact that proponents of this narrative always point to is that globalization has helped lift hundreds of millions of people out of poverty. So we have that the striking fall in the share of people living in absolute poverty, which is mostly due to uh, to to the to the um, development of China and and India, of course, which embraced uh, globalization. Well, what about all those uh, in the developed world who have lost? their job. There are two messages that we hear from this narrative. The first one is that it's mostly about technological change. So a, 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 a number that's often cited by proponents of the narrative is that probably about 80% of dislocation and job losses in manufacturing are due to technological change and innovation, the adoption of new machines and so forth, rather than uh, to, to international trade. And so this graph helps to make that argument because it shows that even as you had this massive fall in manufacturing employment in the United States around 2000, you see that manufacturing output was still uh, going up. So it's really the, the argument is here, it's not because uh, stops have, uh, jobs have been stolen and move, been moved to, uh, to China and Mexico, it's because uh, manufacturers are able to produce more with fewer people. That's why we see uh, massive job losses in manufacturing. And the message that comes from, from this as well is, is that yes, well, the way to deal with that is to retrain those workers, make them move into the cities that are prospering and, and make sure that they, um, that they are thriving as well. A final comment I wanted to make about the establishment narrative, it's, it's, it's probably not an accident that it uh, is promoted by and embraced by international economic um, organizations because it's, it, it's almost a, and allows them to take an apolitical posture. It can, it can say, well, we are, we are in the business of, of making everybody richer, of removing barriers to trade. And it's then for domestic politics to deal with the distributive issues. Right? And so, so that allows uh, these organizations to get kind of pretend that they're staying out of distributive questions. Of course, the challenge, how, how, is the, how does the picture painted by, by um, Trump and the Brexit uh, proponents differ? Well, it's essentially saying, well, we don't necessarily agree about the numbers, about the absolute gains, but, but they point to this relative shift that you see in this graphic from workers in developed countries 
to workers in developing countries. And, and you probably all remember the rhetoric of, of Trump and, and Peter Navarro, his, uh, his trade guy, um, as he described himself, that China and Mexico are stealing, are stealing US jobs. So the idea here is that, um, th that it's not really about comparative advantage and who, who does things more efficiently. It's, it's, it's what is at the heart of this redistribution in the international division of labor is, is cheating on the, on the side of, of Mexico and China, which has allowed them to steal the jobs, which you see here um, on this boat being shipped to China. So this is a, a, a screenshot from a movie by Peter Navarro called Death by China. And what, what struck me when I first saw this picture is that he sees jobs as, um, as, as billiard balls, like as something that you can, uh, that has like a physical manifestation. And that's a, that's a huge difference to the establishment narrative. For the establishment narrative, jobs are simply just an economic activity that you engage in. And then if somebody else becomes more productive in that or better, then you just move on to do another uh, activity. Whereas for, the, for the, this right-wing populist narrative, they see jobs as something that has this, um, is almost like something that you can own. Right? It's like your property and that can be a stone from you and shipped away. And why might this conception of jobs resonate? Well, it might resonate because for, for people who have worked in a particular job for, for decades, maybe even for generations, but their fathers and their grandfathers has already had already had that job, and uh, for whom it's central to their livelihood, central to their status in the community, central to their identity. And I'm thinking here particularly of the steel workers or the manufacturing workers or mining workers in, in, in the United States, which this narrative focuses on. For them, losing that job may actually feel like they've been robbed. It may, be, it may actually feel like they've been deprived of something that was their property. And so this rhetoric that the right-wing populists used about stolen jobs might capture something about this reality that uh, the establishment narrative misses. Right? And so this is, was um, an, an, a sense that you sh we shouldn't be asked um, to trade off the benefits of globalization, like cheaper products and so forth, for, for these jobs, which are so important to our, our identity. Another key difference between the establishment narrative and the right-wing populist narrative is uh, the, the level of analysis that they focus on. And you see, for example, if you look at the change in furniture employment um, in the United States, which was one of the industries which was most affected by competition from China. If you look at the United States as a whole, the, the loss in furniture employment is minuscule. It's hardly perceptible. And that's the typical perspective that the establishment narrative takes. It looks at the U.S. economy and says, well, this doesn't matter. Look, at the same time, we created this many jobs in another area. But if you then, if you look at the impact in North Carolina and even more in, in Hickory, one of the manufacturing towns in, in, in North Carolina, you see that it has a massive, a massive impact. And so what the right-wing populist narrative does, it, it leads us to focus on particular locations and, and show how the how globalization has had this disproportionate impact on particular locations and really hollowed out manufacturing uh, communities. And another point about these manufacturing jobs that are lost is that they are often what the economists describe as multiple, they have a high multiplier. So when you lose manufacturing jobs, you typically lose four to five service sector jobs as well, which are supported by that manufacturing income. So when the factory goes, when the factory leaves town or, or shuts down, it's not just the manufacturing workers who lose their jobs, it's also the, the movies, um, the, the, the restaurants in the area that also suffer. So you see the entire community being sucked into this black hole. 
and particularly in the United States, you, we have the striking effect um, of, or, or a graphic which shows, which is potentially an effect of this, uh, of this development, which is the rise in so-called deaths of despair, which are um, deaths by drugs, alcohol, suicide. And you see it's particularly affecting white non-Hispanics in the United States in a way that you don't see uh, in other developed countries. So it's a quite different story about uh, globalization that this right-wing populist perspective tells. But of course, we also had um, people like uh, on the left who had a quite different critique of, of globalization. They, in their view, it wasn't so much the case that, that the workers in other developing countries were in developing countries were gaining at the expense of workers in developed countries. It was the rich, the elite, uh, that was gaining at the expense of workers in all these um, countries. And partly that argument was that, um, the, the key to the argument was that, yes, we have productivity gains facilitated by technological change and, and specialization in international trade, but the, the gains, these gains are appropriated uh, by, by the elite. They're not kind of trickling through to the workers. And, and the most important graph for this narrative is this one, which shows that around 1970, in, in the mid 1970s, we have this decoupling of productivity growth and wages. So that at that point, uh, yes, productivity keeps rising, but it, this is not reflected in compensation of, of workers. And there are lots of parts of why that is. One is of the crackdown on, on unions, uh, the decrease in unionization is often identified as a key factor, but also all kinds of ways in which uh, the elite rigs the market in order to benefit the richest. As a result, we have this, this striking um, development in the United States that the top 1% now owns more, um, a greater share of the national income than the bottom 50%. And this view was, of course, uh, most prominently advanced by, by Bernie Sanders and people like Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez in the United States, but you also see it in many other developed countries. In the last couple of years, we all in yet an entirely different perspective uh, come up, uh, which is somewhat related to the right-wing populist view, but it's still different. This one doesn't focus so much on workers in the US, in particular communities, losing out. It focuses more on, on the United States as a country losing out towards China in, in this process of great power uh, competition. And the emblematic firm that's, that's, that stands for that, for that development is probably Huawei, Huawei, which um, has become the greatest, the, was on, on track to become the largest telecommunications company and, and had in many ways um, uh, overtaken US companies in, in terms of technological sophistication. This, this, the focus here is not so much, uh, the concern is not so much that we're losing steel jobs or, or, or auto manufacturing jobs. It's, it's that the US, as, the US is losing its status as, as the supreme technological and economic power. We see that China has, at least in purchasing power terms, has overtaken the United States in terms of its uh, share of world GDP. And this comes, comes hand in hand with, with, a, with a whole range of change in attitudes towards globalization. And just to give you one example, foreign direct investment was seen on the establishment narrative as something positive, right? It's something you, you're bringing money into the country, you're creating employment, but if you're starting to see your, uh, your 
economic rival through a security lens as someone who is who is probably going to overtake you and, and might uh, uh, might really put you into in your, in your spot you become more skeptical you become more worried about about the implications of that foreign investment and so the CFIUS is the Committee on Foreign Investment in the United States uh, which which scrutinizes investment that just comes into the United States and we see a huge uptick investigation in investigations of incoming foreign investment around 2008, which is when this narrative really starts uh, taking off. And so the concern with investment is that that the, the, the foreign competitor, in this case, China, is getting ever more control of the United States companies, is giving ever more potential to, to sabotage and spy on the United States. And so this infusion of security concerns into, in, in, into the trade debate is really what, what marks this geoeconomic narrative. It's not solely about jobs, it's also about security. We also see with the Trump administration and increasing concerns about the, the resilience of supply chains, right? The, the Peter Navarro was one, someone who was obsessed with dependence of the United States on supplies from China, right? He would always point out that, uh, for example, medicine, so many of US medicines are imported from China. And, and he was really worried about the, what, what that would mean if there was a conflict between the United States and China and all the leverage that China was gaining as a result. We have a fifth one. We're we almost we're almost done here, which is really uh, the the narrative that you see most prominently, both on the European left and also in among the labor unions in the United States. And we often criticize that this is actually very similar to the left wing populist view that I described earlier. But we still see a difference because this particular narrative takes a transnational perspective, and it says that labor. If you look, what the best perspective to look at who wins and loses from globalization is to look at labor and workers collectively, right? If you look at them collectively and and show how they are losing out against uh, the elite, and particularly here, international multinational corporations. One striking example of this narrative is the protest that you saw in 2015, 2016 in the European Union. And these pro protests were directed against the TTIP uh, agreement, the Transatlantic Trade Investment Partnership between the United States and Europe, and also the CETA agreement, an agreement between the European Union and Canada. And you might wonder, well, why are people protesting these agreements, given that Europe, and particularly Germany, where these protests were, were most forceful, has a huge trade surplus. So we don't have these manufacturing uh, job losses to the same degree, or they don't have the same impact as in the United States. And the explanation is that what they were protesting about the agreements was not any trade liberalization. They were not concerned about trade liberalization. They were concerned about elements of these agreements, which they thought would increase the power of corporations. And there are two uh, particular examples of that. One is investor state resettlement. So they're concerned that US corporations would gain the right to sue European governments um, over regulatory measures that decrease their profits, but also regulatory cooperation, which seems sounds innocuous, but, but the concern here with, was that uh, U.S. corporations would use these agreements to soften and undermine uh, regulatory standards in the European in the European Union that protect, for example, um, that that prohibit hormone treated beef or chlorinated chicken uh, or genetically modified organis organisms. So. How is this perspective different uh, from the left and populist view? It, it doesn't focus so, so much on, on the share of national income that goes to the top and the bottom in individual countries. It looks at how the labor share of income has been decreasing in many different countries, whereas the, the share of corporate profit has been 
has been going up. And uh, one explanation for this, for this development is essentially that international trade facilitates a race to the bottom. Right? For me, this narrative became uh, most prominent in the context of the negotiations around a new NAFTA, which I'm going to talk about later uh, here in North America, where where um, the Canadian unions and U.S. unions were saying that the problem with these trade agreements and NAFTA is not so much that Mexicans and Chinese workers have been able to steal our jobs, is that the corporations have been able to take the good jobs with benefits and high wages in North America, in, in, in the U.S. and Canada, and take them to Mexico and make them into bad jobs, right? So it's not so much that the Mexican workers are benefiting because they are not getting paid good wages, like they, they're being paid poverty wages, they're not even able to buy the cars that they produce. And it's the corporations that are repaying all the benefits. The area where you actually see the most striking evidence of this race to the bottom is the area of corporate taxation. So this graph um, shows you the decreasing corporate tax rates in all the major developed countries over the past couple of decades. In recent uh, years, this corporate power narrative has also taken aim particularly at the large uh, tech companies Right. So uh, there's a focus on how globalization has allowed these companies to, to, to attain dominant positions in their respective fields, and how globalization also frustrates attempts to, to take um, effective action against the tech companies. And we see some attempts now by the opinion in the United States in the Trade and Tech Council to, to, to address these concerns. Finally, there, there's a final perspective which doesn't focus so much on in. On, on relative winners and losers, but rather says that if we go on on our current path, we are all bound to lose, right? So yes, some people are gonna lose more and the poor and developing countries are gonna be the worst off. But if we, if we change our metric and, and don't just look at our GDP figures, but look at overall well-being and, and life chances, then we'll see that on our current path, we are all going, we are all going to lose. The, the prime example of that is, of course, uh, the climate crisis, um, and which has also become to new prominence in, in the last couple of years, mostly thanks to Greta Thunberg and Fridays for Future, uh, probably. And what it points out is that this hockey stick of global prosperity that I showed you earlier is also reflected in a hockey stick of global emissions. So the, the very dynamics that allow us to become ever richer and, and enjoy the standard of living are also the ones that are uh, driving us towards the towards the abyss. And while we were working on the book, there was, um, of course, another development, uh, the COVID-19 pandemic, which which has this has, has some similar dynamics. Um, on the one hand, you, you you have much more severe impacts on the on the on the poor parts of the population. But there's also a a part of of this threat, which means that nobody's safe until until everyone is safe. So there is the same collective uh, prospect of collective loss that we see um, with, with, with climate change. And so the two narratives that we group together in this global threats uh, narratives is in order to get on a sustainable and that focus on resilience. Like we have to be resilient to shocks such as those that are being caused uh, by the pandemic. One author who has written very eloquently about this is uh, Kate Raboth, who uh, which says, well, we have to make sure that we don't overshoot our ecological ceilings, like we have to somehow uh, 
constrain restrain ourselves to, to so we we stay in the safe and just space for humanity but at the same time we also make sure that we have to make sure that we uh, supply the social foundations we have to make sure that everybody has housing um adequate healthcare and so forth and these are of got arguments that have um come up in the in in response to the pandemic very strongly like by way the resilience narrative says well we have to, in order to be resilient we have to make sure that everybody has a paid leave has healthcare in order to make sure that we can deal with these threats. Okay, so if we take these six narratives together, we'll see that they broadly fall into these three categories. We have the win-win narrative that I began with, the establishment narrative at the top. We have different types of win-lose narrative focusing on different groups of winners and losers. And finally, we have this lose-lose perspective that we're all uh, gonna lose out if we don't change our ways. We also see these narratives reflected in the news. These are just a couple of economies covers. So we have the positive view of the establishment narrative, um, the idea that there's this increasing divide between the rich and the rest, uh, the concept that people are left behind by globalization, which is um, kind of go, gets to, to the right-wing populist view. Although I wanna say that when we looked at these narratives um, and, and I spent a lot of time looking at uh, interviews with uh, supporters of the AFD in Germany or, or Brexit supporters in, uh, in, in the UK and uh, Trump supporters in, in the US, you see that they would actually reject this idea that they've been left behind. It's, it's not so much that they've been left behind and now want to catch up. It's more that they, they mourn what has been left behind. Like they want to go back to the way things were, or at least don't want to things to change further. So, so this, uh, describing these people as left behind is actually um, the, adopting the establishment perspective of what the problem is. We have, of course, increasing attention to the China, the, to the um, competition between the United States and, and China, and that is particularly prominent in the United States. It's almost inescapable these days to discuss any trade issues in the United States without um, running into this rivalry. rivalry. And finally, um, the the idea that corporations are the ones who are taking, taking all um, at the expense of everyone else. And uh, the sustainability or global threats narrative at the end. So we see these all reflected all over the media. One interesting aspect of looking at these narratives is that we could see how, how actors were taking the same facts and giving them interpretations. So this is a, the famous elephant graph created by Branko Milanovic in his book, uh, Global Inequality. And it shows the relative rise in income over the past two decades. So at the bottom, you see um, essentially where people fall in the global in income distribution from the world's poorest to the world's richest. And then you see how their income has changed over these two dec decades of, of high globalization from 88 to 2008. And at point one, you have the middle classes in the developing world and China and India. At point two, you have the middle class and working classes in, in the developed world in the West. And at point three, you have the richest uh, people in the world. And so the, the right-wing populist view focuses on the movement from, or, or essentially the redistribution of gains from the working classes and uh, in, the, in the West, in the developing countries at point two, to the working class and middle class in the rising middle class in Asia. Whereas the left-wing populist takes the same picture, but draws attention to a different uh, movement, namely from, uh, from the middle classes and working classes in the developed world towards the, the richest 
well, how, uh, what can we do with these narratives? And of course, as, um, we, as international lawyers, we were interested to see what, well, what can we actually, how can these um, narratives actually help us illuminate what's happening in, in international law? And so in the second part of the book, which is called Working with Globalization Narratives, we, we try to use um, these narratives to illuminate debates in international, not just international law, but in international relations more generally. And uh, our, our preferred tool for that purpose is uh, Venn diagrams, because they help us to map the overlaps and um, differences between the narratives. And I just, uh, given that my background is in trade, I did want to take a, um, an example from the trade field to, to show how these narratives can show us and can help us understand what has happened. And the example that I want to use today is uh, the renegotiation of the NAFTA. So Trump came to power with, as a huge opponent of NAFTA. It was one of his favorite arguments against Clinton that her husband had, had been um, the one who had overseen the, the conclusion of NAFTA. And so he, it was clear that he wanted to reopen the NAFTA. And when, when, he said, when it was clear that, that we, we, there would be a new NAFTA of some sort, the proponents of the establishment narrative, which was essentially the business community, um, most U.S. Republicans, but also parts of Canadian and Mexican government, essentially wanted to continue on the old path. They wanted to do uh, more of the same, which is to, to keep the existing levels of liberalization, um, to modernize the agreement, but also, especially in the U.S., uh, to, to increase further increase protection for intellectual property rights, um, address digital trade, expand free movement, and have stronger dispute settlement. So, so there, was this, there was a real push to go further on the old establishment path of further liberalization, further international legalization, right? It's essentially an opportunity to modernize and fix uh, the old agreement. Against that, the, the Trump administration had very different ideas. They agreed that there was some need for modernization when it came to digital trade, particularly, particularly and they also were happy with additional IP protection because it was mostly down to the benefit of US corporations. But the primary objective of the Trump administration was not to have further liberalization, but to uh, bring manufacturing jobs back to the United States. And they tried to do that in, in the most heavy handed uh, fashion initially by saying, well, we want to have a region of NAFTA. So I said, for those of you who are not tra trade lawyers, rules of origins are the rules that govern when a, uh, a good has access to a to market under a free trade agreement, right? So, for example, in the United States, um, in the if a fifty percent domestic content requirement would a good would only be able to be imported in the United States duty free under NAFTA if fifty percent of the value of the good had been added in the United States. The Trump administration also wanted to have a short sunset period. Uh, it wanted to make sure that the agreement was not going to be in time for in place for a long time. And really the aim here was to create uncertainty. It wanted to create uncertainty that businesses wouldn't be feel confident that they could move their production to the United States and still be able to, to export uh, to the United States, right? So by, by creating that uncertainty, the hope was that businesses would decide, manufacturers would decide to produce in the United States so that they could be sure to have market access in the United States. Interestingly, uh, the Trump administration wanted, also wanted to, to abolish investor state dispute settlement for the same reason, right? It, it said, well, if we give um, US investors the ability to sue Mexico's government if their investment is, is somehow um, 
somehow infringed or diminished in value, that makes them more confident about investing in Mexico. And we don't want them to be confident in, about investing in Mexico, like we want them to invest in the United States. There was also a third perspective, which at the beginning of the negotiations wasn't all that strong. It's partly held by, by the Canadian and Mexican governments, but also particularly by organized labor and the Democratic Party in the United States. And interestingly, it agrees with some of the aspects of the other narratives. Right? It also likes uh, stronger dispute settlement. But the primary reason it likes stronger dispute settlement is because it wants to be able to enforce labor rights in Mexico. It wants to hold the Mexican government to account if the Mexican government does not protect labor rights. The, this corporate power narrative also agrees with abolishing investor state dispute settlement, but not because it wants to create uncertainty necessarily for US corporations in Mexico. It's because it's generally concerned about the power of corporations to sue governments, including the US and Canadian uh, governance, governments. And in a similar vein, it, it opposes the additional protections of uh, property rights. And this was a particularly strong point for Democrats in the United States who wanted to reduce the price of medication. And one way to do that was to actually dismantle some intellectual property protection for medicines. So what's interesting is to see how these, how these different priorities came together in, um, in different versions of the agreement. Because the first version of the agreement, the so-called USMCA, US-Mexico-Canada agreement, you see the free trade has been removed from the title, was signed in November, uh, on November 30th, 2018. And it shows that it was very much dominated by the protectionist narrative of the Trump administration. It has the elements that we find in the agreement, additional IP protection, modernization of rules, are in the areas of overlap with the other ones, but we don't find any elements which are not within this protectionist circle. And the most interesting aspect, is, um, I think, from the perspective of, of the narratives is what happened to that US domestic content requirement. That was unpalatable for Mexico and Canada. Obviously, they wouldn't accept that the US would like, get this priority status in the agreement. But the negotiators found a way to reformulate this requirement in a way that made it palatable to those in, who subscribed to the corporate power narrative. And so what they did instead was to create something called a labor content requirement. And what this requirement says is that up to 40%, 40, at least 40% of the value of the, of the car has to be made by workers making at least $16 an hour. And you can see why this compromise would appeal to both uh, proponents of the protections narrative and the corporate power narrative. For the protections narrative, they could say, well, um, wages in Mexico are around $4 an hour. So if 40% of the car has to be manufactured by workers making $16 an hour, that means the production is gonna come back to the United States and, and, and Canada. Okay. Whereas for proponents of the corporate power narrative, you could say, well, well that, at least holds the promise that companies are going to increase the wages of at least some of the workers in Mexico in order to meet that 40% requirement. So the corporate power narrative saw a potential here to boost worker power vis-a-vis -vis corporations. And that allowed this compromise to happen. Interestingly, in that very month when this agreement was signed, the Republicans lost the majority in the House of Representatives in the United States. And the Democrats, once the Democrats took their, took their seats, they um, demanded changes to the agreement. And those changes really decisively shifted the balance of the agreement towards the corporate power narrative. So about one year later, we had a, an amended version of the US MCA. And just let's look at the changes that happened to the agreement. Well, the additional IP protections were gone. And this is the first US trade agreement in 
decades, which does not further increase intellectual property protections. Instead, we have no additional protections for intellectual property rights. We also have a strengthened labor standards and labor rights enforcement in Mexico. The agreement created a so-called rapid response mechanism, which allows, uh, allows the US government and the Canadian government to block imports from specific, uh, from specific factories in Mexico if there are labor rights violations there. And it also beefed up dispute settlement, again, with the same goal of, um, of strengthening labor rights enforcement in vis-a-vis -vis, vis -vis Mexico. So the narratives help us understand how shifting uh, power between different proponents of the narratives uh, change the content on the center of gravity of the agreement. Another example where the narratives help us make sense of what's happening is the semiconductor shortages. You probably all have seen headlines about uh, the chips crisis, uh, the fact that car, car, car manufacturers had to close factories because they didn't have sufficient uh, semiconductors. And um, I'm just gonna check on the time here. Okay. And, and, and these different policies, we cannot make of, of, of sense of all these different policies are, that are, that are um, influencing this crisis through the narratives. One of the first actions on chips that we saw was, was the Trump administration's um, tariffs on all things Chinese, including on Chinese semiconductors. So a contributor to the chips guys in the United States was actually the fact that the United States put uh, tariffs on Chinese uh, semiconductors in order to like bring jobs back to the United States. And that led to a fall in imports of ships from China. And this can only really be explained from the perspective of the protectionist narrative. Right? That was that what was Trump was trying to do. At the same time, also still during the Trump administration, we also had uh, the imposition of export restrictions on uh, export restrictions on semiconductors. And the attention here was to hobble strategic competitors of the United States. So particularly, the Trump administration wanted to make sure that Huawei and other Chinese companies didn't get hold of most advanced semiconductors, right? And, and for the Trump administration, that was not simply a national security issue, was also a, a, a concern of uh, Huawei like, attaining, being able to, to, uh, to become the most advanced semiconductor company. Like, it, it's, it's a very radical company to, to just, um, to just make sure, trying to, to, to destroy your competitors' company is a very radical policy. We also saw export restrictions during pandemic, of course. Um, so, so just, just um, to highlight the contrast between these two policies, this action to impose export restrictions, of course, didn't make sense from the protections narrative because the protections narrative is about creating good jobs for, for your people. Right? If, you if you restrict exports from your company, you're, you're eliminating employment, right? you're, you're you're, you're, um, you destroy jobs, in fact. So we can't really make sense of these two different policies without, making, without understanding in the context of their particular narrative. Of course, during the pandemic, we also saw export restrictions imposed on stuff like um, personal protective equipment and vaccines. But there's a real difference between the um, export restrictions that are imposed uh, for, on resilience grounds and on geoeconomic grounds. Because when you impose export restrictions on resilience grounds, what, what you're trying to do is to make sure that you have enough domestic supply. And that's different from trying to destroy your competitor's uh, company. And that also explains why many of the export restrictions uh, imposed in the course of the pandemic were temporary restrictions. 
What's interesting when you look at these three narratives that were playing the chips have been playing the chips crisis is that they all can agree for different reasons on the need to invest in domestic manufacturing, and that's why we have seen a big push towards um, industrial policies that create uh, manufacturing capacity at home. For the protectionists, it's, it's about jobs. Like you want to have high quality manufacturing jobs. For the geoeconomic narrative, it's about um, making sure that you're not dependent on a strategic competitor. And for the United States, that has been particularly uh, acute because 90% of advanced semiconductors are manufactured in Taiwan. And there's a real concern that uh, China will actually um, invade Taiwan in the, in the next couple of years and that the US will thereby lose access to, uh, to most advanced semiconductor manufacturing. Right? So there's a real ge geoeconomic imperative here to invest in manufacturing. From the perspective of the resilience narrative, it's simply a question of being able to withstand shocks in supply and demand. Right? So the European Union just can't um, tolerate that car manufacturers are not able to produce because they don't have access to these uh, chips. So they all overlap in this area. But again, in other areas, we see, uh, we see differences. So for example, if our perspective is primarily concerned about resilience, our ability withstand shocks, then our imperative is to diversify sources of supply, but <clears throat> that could be uh, include strategic competitors, right? So it might make sense to, to source not just from one Chinese company, but from different Chinese companies and also companies from other countries. If we primarily take a geoeconomic perspective where we don't wanna be dependent on a strategic competitor, then diversification has to happen among allies and sometimes referred to as ally shoring, right? So bringing Chinese uh, companies into these supply chains that we're trying to, to build would not make sense from that perspective. In, another policy that, that uh, we see is investments in stockpiling uh, for, so for example, Toyota was able to withstand the crisis for a long time because it, it had learned its lesson from, from the earthquakes and tsunamis in Japan and, and make sure that it had an adequate supply. And in final contrast between the two narratives is that in the case of a geoeconomic perspective, you're skeptical of inbound foreign direct investment. And I showed you earlier, the, the stock rise in investigations of inbound foreign investment under CFIUS in the United States. Whereas in the, from the perspective of the protections narrative, what you're really concerned about is outbound investment. You wanna make sure that companies invest at home rather than abroad. What's common to the um, protectionist and the geoeconomic narrative, and, and this really re uh, unites uh, these different factions in the United States is some, uh, a zero sum conception of international trade. Right? So China's win is the US's loss, whether you care about um, advanced manufacturing or whether you care about like old-style manufacturing jobs. Whereas what's common about the protectionist and the resilience narratives is this concern about the well-being of the domestic work workforce. Though there's a real difference between the two narratives. If you listen to Trump, you, you'll see that he mostly talks about uh, white men. He mostly talks about auto workers, miners. Uh, he never talks about like the textile industry where you have primarily uh, women and minorities are primarily employed. And here, here of course, also never talks about the, the service sector. Whereas for the resilience narrative that emerged in response to the, to the pandemic, the focus was very much on the, on the plight of service workers, like the essential workers who had precarious jobs and were doing incredibly dangerous and important work. So the left-wing and right-wing populists, they, they 
there's a, there's a, there's a concern about the domestic workforce, but there's a focus on different parts of that workforce. So this gives us the pictures of how the diff, all the different policies that are in play in the chips crisis. So we, we, we we, we don't stop in the book, we don't stop at the ban. We, we actually go further and, and employ this metaphor of, of a kaleidoscope because when we look, draw lessons from our analysis for policymaking, what, what really struck us is, is the need to, to see the kaleidoscopic complexity of these issues. And what do we mean by that? It's really an ability to not just see the different narratives and what they say, but to try to integrate insights, insights from these uh, different narratives. So Sudfeld has this concept of integrated complexity, which has two steps. The first step is to differentiate the different perspectives, but then to somehow integrate them, like um, consider them, see, see where the trade-offs are between them, where there are commonalities, where they are incommensurable, and then try to work out how we can design policies that take into account um, all of these different perspectives. And one example that I wanted to give where um, that wasn't done was, was Macron's uh, diesel tax, his tax on, on um, diesel, which prompted the Yellow West protest. If you look at that policy from the perspective of the establishment narrative or the sustainability narrative, it makes perfect sense. Like the establishment narratives likes market-based solutions, uh, the sustainability narrative wants to combat climate change. But what Macron ignored was how this, uh, same policy that these policy looked from the perspective of other narratives, such as the right-wing populist or left-wing populist narrative one, right? For the right-wing populist narrative, what the diesel tax was doing was just punishing people living in the countryside, uh, people, whereas it wasn't doing anything about the elite, the city-dwelling elites who were taking uh, flights uh, to their vacation, right? So it was burdening uh, a particular part of the population that is particularly in rural and conservative areas. From the perspective of the left-wing populist narrative, it was also further um, promoting the inequality that we're already seeing in, in French society. So essentially, if you the, the message here is that if you don't um, try to see policies from the perspective of all these narratives, you're, you're bound to risk that your policies are going to go up in flames because there are going to people who are going to see these policies in completely different ways than than you are doing. Adopting all these different perspectives, so trying to integrate them also helps us to have, make better predictions about the future. So Philip Tatlock has, has this metaphor of, of dragonfly eyes. So if you look at these, um, the eyes of the dragonfly, you see that it has uh, thousands of lenses that essentially give it a 360 degree vision of the world. And what he has found in, Tatlock has found in his research is that if people adopt this dragonfly thinking, they make, they're able to much, make much better predictions about the future than if they just focus on, on one, one perspective. Well, of course, it's difficult as an individual to always do that, uh, to be able to um, integrate all these perspectives. So one way of achieving that goal is to build diverse teams. And we, we have that, I got that idea from Saeed. It would show that even if you have lots of intelligent people, so we have like David here, intelligent guy, and then we, but, but then we get a whole bunch of other intelligent uh, people, but they are intelligent in the same way as David. They have the same perspective as David and put them together. Then we actually may have a, a, a team that is composed of smart people, but it's collectively stupid because it doesn't, uh, it reinforces people re in this group, they reinforce each other's biases. 
and they don't uh, don't come at the issue from different perspectives. So what we need really is is diverse teams. And to just give you an example, uh, again from international law, where that may have been a problem before I joined Queens, I used to work at the World Trade Trade Organization at the WTO applet body. And you may have heard that the WTO applet body is is defunct. That is no longer um, working because the United States has been blocking appointments uh, to the Apple body. So obviously, having worked in the Secretariat, I, I've been thinking about that a lot. And I've been wondering whether one problem of the, um, of the team that was supporting the Apple body, but also the Apple body itself, uh, was a lack of diversity. And what do I mean by that? Obviously, at the, at the WTO, we were, we were incredibly diverse. We came, all came from different countries. Uh, we um, spoke different languages, uh, different cultural backgrounds, but uh, none of us was really in a position to fully understand the U.S. perspective because none of us came from the um, from the trade remedy side in the United States. And so I don't want to get too deep into into the matters into into the issue here. But the the reason why the U.S. is so upset about the Apple body is because the Apple bodies because of the Apple body's jurisprudence on trade remedies. So we had a US American in the Apple body secretariat, but he came from the State Department, not the Department of Commerce. And so maybe it was because of we didn't have someone who, uh, who really represented that US perspective, that protectionist perspective among us that we couldn't really fully grasp uh, the, the US concerns about what the Apple body was doing. And what was interesting is that the US always had an Apple body member itself. It always had an Apple body member itself. And the uh, US could, would know that whenever it nominated Apple body members, uh, the membership would choose at least one US Apple body members. But what the US did in order to be nice to the other parts of the membership, it would typically nominate one Apple body member who was very controversial or who held very strong critical views of the Apple body. And then one who was a bit more mellow and a bit more mainstream. And on each of the occasions when the WTO membership had the choice between these two different after body members, it chose the more mellow one, the more uh, mainstream one. And I'm just wondering, I think that that was a mistake. I think if the, the uh, WTO membership had chosen the after body member who was uh, more uh, critical of the after body, like a bit like Lincoln's team of rivals, it would have potentially and protected the Apple body because have, that member could have told the it's caught his colleagues uh, it was all men could have told his colleagues that um, what what really the U.S. concerns with the Apple body were and the danger that the Apple body was running in in pursuing the cause that it pursued. So this uh, this these diverse perspectives uh, that we're talking about here, the importance of having diverse teams, is something that's acutely relevant for international law. Um, I would say. So I don't know how I'm doing for time, uh, Natasha. Uh, let me just, I think I've run over. Um, That's absolutely time. fine, Nicholas. If you, if you could sort of pull things together, we'll, we'll move to some questions, but um, it's so fascinating. So please do. <laughs> okay. So um, one, I just want to mention one um, limitation of the book, which is that as you may have no, will have noticed is I've been speaking primarily from the, from the Western perspectives about debates in the West and we, we are very conscious of the fact that uh, we are not giving the same uh, in-depth treatment to narratives from outside the West. We have a chapter in the book where we talk about blind spots and, narrative, narr um, blind spots and biases in the Western narratives. 
where we try to address some of the non-Western perspectives. But I think I'll stop here and I'm happy to get back to these, uh, to, to the non-Western narratives in the debate and the discussion.